A word of warning. This podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories and includes some strong language. It therefore may not be suitable for our young listeners or other folks who may find it disturbing. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily, the podcast covering high profile and under the radar cases from across the country every week. I'm your host, Anna Garcia. Our cases this week are about children who kill. What hope is there for us if 12-year-olds are plotting murder, and this is a case out of Texas, and these kids almost succeeded, say police. Two girls allegedly plotted to murder both of their families, including the family pets, so they could run away together. One girl got as far as shooting her, her father and then turning the gun on herself. The other child changed her mind. But first, a former child actor has been sentenced to life in prison for the murder of his mother. He shot his mother while she was playing the piano. You may not know his name, but you may recognize his face from the TV show Riverdale or the movie Diary of a Wimpy Kid. Plus, we have an update on that California mom who faked her own kidnapping, Sherry Papini. She's going to prison for longer than prosecutors asked, and the interrogation tapes that have just been released are amazing. We are recording this on Wednesday, September 28th of 2022. Our guest today is Robert Corbett, a criminal defense attorney based in Charlotte, North Carolina. Robert is also a former homicide prosecutor, friend of the show. Robert, we're so thrilled that you could join us today. How are you? I'm doing fine, and thank you for having me on again. I always enjoy participating. Yeah, and we know that you ran over to your office uh, from court. You were there. So um, we always appreciate it because, you know, you all are in it every day. So you give us, you know, the facts and what's going on in court. And I I know one of these cases in particular, um, you and I talked about on Instagram. So we're going to get to that in a bit. I'm very distressed by the cases today, Robert, because... I feel like this is among the most tragic episodes we've done in a long time because the concept of children killing their parents is horrific. And it's so frightening. They're young. Well, yeah, I would agree. I think when you're dealing with a homicide case, a murder case, the loss of life is is always tragic, Um, sometimes inexcusable, inexplicable. So these are the types of cases that shock the conscience, are hard to defend. Because just the way that we're talking about it, that's the same way that your potential jury is going to view these types of cases. Absolutely. So let's get to the first case. This is about 24-year-old actor Ryan Grantham. Now, he has now been sentenced to life in prison for shooting his 64-year-old mother, Barbara Waite. He did it by shooting her in the back while she was playing a piano in their Squamish home, which is about an hour north of Vancouver, Canada. Police say that he planned to go on a killing spree after killing his mother. He wanted to assassinate the Canadian Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, but Ryan turned himself in to the Vancouver police before killing anyone else. The thing here, Robert, is is, um, the things that he admits to doing in between killing his mother and then turning himself into police um, are unbelievably disturbing. Yeah. So when you hear those types of things, the first thing that sort of popped in my head is one, are you dealing with any potential um, mental health issues, something that can be used to mitigate a possible sentence? He's charged or charged with first degree murder, pled to second degree murder. So that sort of lets me know that there were probably some circumstances that convinced the prosecutors to make a, a lower offer. And even when you think about in terms of the things that he talked about doing or were planning on doing and even possibly intending to harm Prime Minister um, Trudeau, those when I hear them, I sort of think in terms of one, are they even relevant in terms of to the to the case? Certainly they sound salacious when we hear about all these things that he planned to do, but I don't think they necessarily count towards that sentence or count towards that offer because you have what's called in terms of you can be charged with an attempt crime and that you fall short of it, but it has in order to be charged or convicted of an attempt crime, you have to do more than just mere preparation. So in terms of I'm almost at the door and but for some intervening act, I didn't complete that crime. 
And when it comes to the crime of killing his mother, he did a lot of really odd, weird things that are equally disgusting. So, so if the um, other attempts, as you say, didn't really have a bearing directly on the murder of his mother, it seems like he's certainly got enough um, bad behavior here that is um, very disturbing in how and why he killed his mother. In fact, it's really unclear why. Th- this is the part I'm having trouble with. It's not clear to me why he killed his mother. So let's talk a little bit more about him and then the details of this crime. So Ryan Grantham began his acting career at the age of nine. He was in the television shows Riverdale, Supernatural, and I, Zombie, as well as films including Diary of a Wimpy Kid. And he had a role in Heath Ledger's final film, The Imaginarium of Dr. Pernet. Parnassus? I don't know this film. And it seems like you're, I know you're a film buff, so you probably do, <laughs> but I, well, I don't. I've heard of the last one and I am definitely familiar with all of the other TV shows he was involved in. Because you have kids. Right. So, um, so definitely the books, Diary of Wimpy Kid, Riverdale based on the Archie comics. So yes, I'm familiar with this work. Absolutely. So like I said, if you don't know his name, you probably recognize his face. He was raised by his mother because his father left when he was very young. Crown prosecutor, that's what they call them in Canada. The crown prosecutor noted that two psychological reports indicated that Ryan Grantham suffered from intense clinical depression in the months leading up to the shooting. That probably is accurate. You know, he was definitely spiraling here. Um, Apparently, he hated himself and had a lot of guilt about abandoning his studies at Simon Fraser University. That may be so, but that is no reason to hurt your mother or kill your mother. You know, right? (laughs) You're an adult. (laughs) These, These are actions and decisions you make. So he apparently decided, if this is the motive, it's just... I still don't get it. He apparently decided to kill his mother to save her, to save her from witnessing the other acts of violence that he was planning. He was actually trying to spare her is what he claims because he was going to go on and try and kill the prime minister and others. That just, that doesn't make any sense to me, Robert. What kind of motive is this? Yeah. And sometimes um, you might not have a clear cut motive. And maybe like in this case, we can say that um, even that was this motive, it doesn't make sense. Someone who's dealing with that type of psychosis, that type of mental health issue, that even if it seems like it makes sense to them, it's never going to make sense to the, the outside world. So in terms of those things that he, he was doing, I think, as we said earlier, that that probably does play a, a large part in terms of why the Crown Prosecutor would make any uh, concessions in this type of case. So in the days leading up to the murder of his mother, Ryan allegedly staged walkthroughs. This is premeditated. He staged, right? I mean, this isn't like a last minute. It's like, oh, this piano playing, I'm losing my mind. I'm going to shoot you. No, 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 no. This was a very calculated thing on his part. So he staged these walkthroughs of the crime, even recording himself on a GoPro, which was later used against him in court. You know? So on the day of the murder, the day of the murder is March 31st of 2020. Prosecutors say that Ryan Grantham loaded and unloaded his 22 over the course of 15 minutes on the steps of his mother's townhouse. I think that's important. At any time, he could have stopped and he did not. Yeah, well, and then when you said in terms of sort of like the days leading up to this, it certainly fits the definition of being premeditated and deliberate. But even and that's sort of like what we, we think about when we think about a crime being first degree and premeditated and deliberated. We sort of think about that there has to be this buildup to it. But even without the buildup, with even without him doing that under most state laws, premeditation, deliberation, it can happen, you know, just snap of a finger in terms of however amount of time, no matter how small it takes for you to form that specific intent to kill. So for all of this information, it certainly shows that you know it didn't happen in a moment, but he did have this thought out over some period of time. And that's why it would justify a first degree murder charge in this case. And with cameras, you know, available and recording much of this, it's not like the cameras caught that moment where he's like, oh, my God, what have I done? 
It wasn't that. He just continued. He continued with this insanity. So after shooting his mother, Barbara, Ryan then recorded himself and his mother's corpse with the GoPro camera. The video was shown in, in court and, and Ryan makes this chilling declaration, quote, I shot her in the back of the head. I mean, that that's insane. And, and, and he adds, because in the moments after she would have known that it was me. Well, duh. It's like, you know, to be a genius to figure out that the mom knew that she'd been shot in the head by you. So then Ryan admits to, uh, you know, I guess that's important. He admits that he takes this GoPro video and then he journals about the murder. Yeah. So when you look at it in terms of you can never know in terms of what exactly is going on in someone's mind. But what prosecutors look at are facts and circumstances. What did the person do beforehand? What is the person doing afterwards to show is there a consciousness of guilt to show is there some not necessarily plan, but is this premeditated? Is it deliberate? And in this case, you you certainly have that. So when we and then when we say in terms of is he insane or this is like insanity to, to, to do these things, and, you, know, and the, you know, for the layperson, we certainly say that in terms of to be involved in a homicide, to be involved with a homicide involving a parent, you have to be that. But in terms of for the legal definition, it has to be where you unable to comprehend what you were doing at the time. Um, so it may have been in terms of, yes, he was clinically depressed. Yes, he's going through these things. Yes, he's in a bad spot because of leaving the, the university. But he knew what he was doing. He understood what was doing. And that's why he can't claim insanity. But maybe because he did confess at an early stage um, they were willing to give him, let him plead the second degree, but he still received life. Yeah, I, I do think that's important that he went to police. He admitted what he had done. He told the officer, it was so shocking, I've just killed my mother, and turns himself in, in essence, stopping him, you know, having the wherewithal to know I must stop myself before I do anything else. So that is the saving grace in all of this. I do believe, I do believe finally some clarity came to him. But I still find everything else so repulsive, and I'm so disgusted by this case. So he's doing his journaling. Um, he tells police that he left his mother in this pool of blood, and then he went out to get some beer and more marijuana. Okay. Then he comes back, comes back to her townhouse, and he starts practicing making Molotov cocktails. He watches Netflix for a couple of hours, and then he covers his mother up with a sheet. Oh, isn't that a respectful young man? Then he hangs a rosary from the piano, and then he arranges candles around his mother's body. For some sort of showing reverence to her outside of maybe some like religious um, ceremony. But all of these things just kind of like play into in terms of that this is an individual who knew what he was doing and was not overcome by some psychosis at the moment to be such that he could not be held responsible. No, no. So while all of this drama is going on in his fantasy world, he then gets back to his plot of trying to kill the prime minister. That's why he was practicing the Molotov cocktails. Um, so police say, Ryan, and you know, I will say this, Ryan Grantham provided police with a lot of these details as part of his confession, explaining what was going on. Some of it was already found forensically, and then other things just lined up. So he tells police that he intended to kill the Canadian prime minister. And so he knew he was going to need some guns. So he loaded three guns, ammunition, and 12 Molotov cocktails into his vehicle. And the plan was to drive um, 40 hours to Ottawa, to continue this violent killing spree of his, um, he reportedly tested throwing a Molotov cocktail in a secluded area, kind of like practicing for his assault. And um, after driving to Hope, British Columbia, which was about two and a half hours away from his mother's body, he decides to turn around and he abandons his plan, which I think is good which I think is good. He abandons his plan. He goes back to Vancouver. And that's when he finds an officer sitting in his squad car. And Ryan says to the police officer, I killed my mother. And then that begins everything, the, the interrogation, the crime scene. Now, what's important while Ryan is in his um, 
state of trying to follow through with the rest of his plans. His sister, Lisa Grantham, finds the mother. She was worried. She had been texting her mother, calling her mother, and her mother wasn't responding. So Lisa went to the townhouse. And what does she find? This incredibly gruesome, violent crime scene to only learn later that it was her own brother who did this. What a family tragedy. What a family tragedy. Oh, yeah, my goodness. Probably, yeah. In terms of for her to, in essence, losing two family members, in terms of losing her mom and then having her brother being the one responsible. Oh, it's just devastating. So on March 9th of this year of 2022, Ryan Grantham pleaded guilty to second degree murder. In Canada, the second degree murder offense carries an automatic life sentence with parole eligibility eligibility guidelines that are set somewhere between 10 and 25 years. It's up to the judge to decide that. So at Ryan's sentencing hearing, which was in June of 2022, this year, his sister Lisa made um, a victim impact statement in which she said she was certain that her brother was a dangerous person. No defending him. I can't imagine I could possibly defend him myself. She told the court, quote, how can I trust anybody when my own sibling chose to execute my mother when her back was turned? That's a, a powerful statement that's rendered by the surviving family member. And that's certainly, I'm sure, carry weight with the judge hearing that. Because you can, like you say, you can falter if, I mean, for her not to offer any supportive words. But victims are allowed to make those type of statements and courts aren't necessarily going to be completely swayed by them, but they certainly factor that in. Yeah. When you remove all the distractions and the noise and the Molotov cocktails and the plans that didn't come out, all of that, you remove all of that, the sitting there watching on Netflix and journaling. What Lisa said is exactly what happened. When their mother's back was turned, he executed her. And it is as simple as that. And that's probably make the probably wise decision for him to resolve this short of trial, because I, you know, if I was the defense attorney or speaking to the defense attorney, all of that other stuff is not relevant. So even if you were successful in keeping that out, you're still left with the cold hard fact of he killed his mom while her back was turned and you can't get around that. Oh, my goodness. On the final day of the sentencing hearing, Ryan Grantham got a chance to say something. He expressed regret for his action and he pleaded with the court to consider his age at the time of the shooting. He was 21. You know what? I don't think so. 21, you are old enough to know better. I'm sorry. There's a big difference between 21, 14, 12. He was 21. Right. So yeah, no sympathy there. Yeah. No, yeah, exactly. No judge is going to be swayed by someone who committed first degree murder or committed murder and then just based solely on their age. And I think like, like we said, the only concessions that he was given was to be able to plead the second degree. And that's probably factoring in the mental health diagnosis. Mm -hmm. He said, quote, I cannot explain or justify my actions. I have no excuse. It hurts me to think about how badly I have wasted my life. Yeah. Guess what else can he say? Yeah, and, that, yeah, and that's always, um, I deal with a lot of young people, um, probably like late teens, early, early 20s. And it's always sad in terms of to be in that situation, and especially when you sort of like look at it, that you may think that this is a person who has opportunities, means that other, a lot of other people don't. And to this callously throw away all of that for something that, you know, we may never understand. Um, and regardless of his relationship with her, um, certainly it's not justified um, in any way. But, you know, we can still say that there are things that can mitigate it, but not enough to get him out from under this. Yeah, uh, this is a person of means. Uh, you know, while, again, we may not know him to the level of other celebrities, this is someone who had a level of celebrity, fame, success, money, you know, it's hard to get a job as an actor, uh, let alone on all these different TV shows and a movie. And I'm sorry, right? He had all everything there. Plus he had a university um, degree that he could work on. So I, I just have no sympathy for him. He had way too much access and many opportunities to say no. 
And even and even though we still want just because we say, hey, well, you have these 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 things doesn't mean, you know, I'm not trying to say that people who have means or access aren't going through their own uh, troubles or have their own crosses, yes. crosses to bear. But, you know, for like I said, this is one of those cases that shocked the conscience. And, you know, this wasn't going to be a case where a jury would be very sympathetic to him. No, not at all. So last week on September 21st, Ryan <clears throat> Grantham was sentenced to life in prison. He will be eligible for parole in 14 years. Our next case is out of Weatherford, Texas, where a twisted murder plot hatched by children almost decimated two families. The children are not being named. Given the gravity of what they tried to do, um, I'm curious whether you all, and you'll all comment on this, do you think we should be protecting their identities given the gravity of what police are alleging here or the fact that they really are just 12 years old, um, that they should be protected in this way? Does this serve the public interest? I'm just curious on your opinions. Okay, police say that a 12-year-old girl in Weatherford, Texas, conspired with another girl in Lufkin, Texas, which is about 200 miles away. And this was the plan. They were going to kill their families and they were going to kill all of the family pets, which I I mean, it all concerns me. But when you're dealing with kids and pets and that they're willing to kill their pets too, sometimes kids love their pets more than parents. I'm just saying from the perspective of the child brain, I'm just, and then as part of the plot, they were going to meet up and run away to Georgia after the murders. This is insane. This is ludicrous. And what is so frightening, Robert, is that one of the girls got very close. She shot her father. And then for for this one, especially when you're dealing with children, 12-year-old girls, you know, when when you, you hear this one, I think, your heart just breaks for that because you're thinking like, what could they have gone through? What did they go through that brought them to, to this point? Um, yeah. And then, so I, I can't even, you know, probably like a, imagine, imagine it in order, not only in terms of what they're going through, but that led them to to formulate this plan and not just in terms of just mere preparation or talking about it, but to actually try to, to put it in, in, in action and go forward with it. You know, kids hatch all sorts of crazy plans. Oh, we're going to run away and I'm going to take my dad's pickup truck. And, you know, all of that seems almost age appropriate for 12, right? right. Almost all of that part of it seems age appropriate, except for yeah, this part. I did myself in terms of, hey, I'm going to run away and maybe I think as far as the driveway um, yeah. before you realize common sense kicks in and say that obviously was not a good idea. No, no. But this part, this is the part I don't get. Why must you kill the whole family and the family pets? Like, why not then just run away? None of of this makes any sense. Like, part of it is very childlike, and I get, but it's it's the murder part that is very dark, disturbing, and, and really has me very worried here about what was going on. So police say that the child in Lufkin changed her mind, but the girl in Weatherford went ahead, according to police. She shot her father in the stomach, and then she shot herself in the head, which I do not believe was part of the plan. It sounds like, and I don't know, just reading into it here, because he was found in the house, she was found outside. I have a feeling, again, just guessing here, that she goes through with it. She shoots her father in the stomach and then realizes, what have I done? Which is probably why she ran away. And then the question is, you know, did she shoot herself in the head intentionally? Was there an accident? She was found in the street, the gun under her. Um, I don't know. I don't, it's so frightening. It is so frightening to even consider this. Like what happened? And until we hear from her or the dad and really the one that we really need to hear from is the other girl in the other, in the other community who didn't go through right. with it because she would know the details of the right. plan. So, yeah. So I think there's definitely in terms of for, for this one, there's more beneath the surface and that through the investigation and assuming like how much is, is released, 
I think we will learn in terms of what there's more going on that will lead them to this point. And then the one who, when you were talking about who, who changed her mind, I always sort of look at things, uh, maybe it's just a function of just doing this like for, for so long, but I always look at it in terms of what happens if we go to trial and what is the, the possible defense. And when I first read the headline about her changing her mind, is that there's a theory under the law that you are held responsible for the actions of what everyone else does, even if you didn't do it yourself. But one way to kind of get out from underneath that is if you make it known that you no longer want to be a part of this plan. Um, and that may be in terms of uh, interesting um, thing that has to be litigated as that case, with, as her case moves forward. That if so, she made it known, so yeah, she made it known, she made it known to the other girl that she no longer wanted to be a part of that. Then there's an argument that she's not responsible for for what occurred. So you're saying that's a mit- possibly a mitigating um, circumstance <clears throat> that she didn't go through with it, especially if at some point she voiced, "I don't want to do this anymore," because she has been charged. She's been charged with criminal conspiracy as part of this alleged murder plot. It's not like this kid's getting off. Right. So it's definitely in terms of a a mitigating factor, but it can also be that if the if the crime had been committed or if we say or even where it is in terms of that the girl is charged with or can be charged with attempted murder, some type of felony assault, um, even though um, for just like shooting her dad, if the girl in Lumpkin was still a part of the plan, then there is an argument that she, too, could be charged with that crime meaning not just conspiracy in terms of talking about it or planning about it, but she could have been charged with the actual crime as well. And since she's saying, no, I don't want to be a part of this, I'm not doing that, then that's probably what was factored in of why they're saying, look, we're not going to charge her with it, but we're going to charge her with at least talking about it and planning it initially in some way. Mm-hmm. Yep. And and that's <clears> what you, um, we were talking yesterday, a lot, over the weekend, you had posted this this um, description of the theory and how you thought it could be applicable here um, on your Instagram. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's so fascinating (laughs) as I'm messaging you on Instagram. See, even on Instagram, you can learn about the law and theories. It's always a very helpful thing. Um, That's why I like following all our guests because you all talk about such interesting things. Um, Now, this shooting, obviously, we don't have a lot of details. We're sharing everything that we know. I think there's a, a reason why authorities are not coming forward with, and I'm talking about the details, not not the children's names or anything like that, because they haven't even released the father's name, obviously, in order to protect the child, um, her I- ID, because if you name him, you therefore know who she is. Uh, the shooting took place last week on September 20th at around 1130 at night, which is interesting. That's really kind of late um, for, for this to unfold. Um, inside the house, the the girl's father, who's 38 years old, was located. Um, the girl was outside. They did recover the gun. I think that's important. And both victims were rushed to the hospital. Not a lot of information on their condition or anything like that. Uh, authorities did say that this plan was in the works for weeks. It's not like the kids just woke up that morning. This is something, again, like we saw this pattern in the first case. You have opportunities to stop. You have opportunities to stop your mind from going that far, get back into reality and do the right thing. One of the kids managed to do that. The other one did not. Oh my goodness. As part of this insane plot. So police say that the 12 year old in Weatherford was planning to drive to the other kid's house pick her up. Okay. We're talking about a 12 year old driving. Okay. (laughs) And it's a four hour drive. So the, the one in Weatherford was going to get in a car or one of her parents' vehicles, drive the four hours to get the other one. And then, then they were just like going to go to Georgia. It's just, it's all too much. Yeah. So for for this one, I say, and I think especially when we're talking about the, the age, the questions that I would have would be, excuse me, like, what is the relationship between the two girls? Um, are they, were they friends before this? Or are they related? Is this something in terms of they are talking over social media? 
um, exclusively. And this is like, once again, so I'm putting on defense hat if I'm representing the one who, who backed out. Are they just talking about it over social media? Does she not really think that this is they're going to go forward with this or that the girl is really trying to do this? And then when she realizes that, no, she really wants to do this, she's really trying to harm someone. And then she makes it know that, no, I, I don't want to do this. I'm not a part of this. I was talking. I was role playing um, because preteen angry with parents say things that you don't mean. Um, but I think in terms of her role, I think there was a argument without obviously knowing more that she didn't take may not have taken this as seriously as the other girl did, obviously. Right, right. And we don't know <laughs> how they know each other. We don't know how they met or how they communicated. Police have intentionally not shared that yet with the public. The communications director for the city of Lufkin did release a statement and, um, I, you know, clearly they're going to know a lot more, but I think it's just something for everyone to think about. This is, this is their reaction to this horrible tragedy quote. This case illustrates just how vitally important it is for parents to know who their children are friends with and what would be, and that would be whether in the classroom on social media like TikTok and Snapchat, or even gaming platforms. Yes, in a perfect world, parents should know who their children are interacting with. But in this virtual world that our kids now partially live in, we cannot completely know or patrol who our children are engaging with over social media sites, when they're gaming, there's there's just no way of knowing. There are predators out there pretending to be children. I mean, yes, I I agree with what the communications director says, but I also know how hard that is on parents. Yeah, in terms of like definitely, um, you know, we you know everyone should probably do more in yes. terms of checking up on like. Roblox or whatever games you're on. And, you know, we talked about before about having a teenage son. So he's into gaming, you know, what all is going on in terms of in those headsets, but not just in terms of checking in terms of communications with your kids. I think it's also important that I would be surprised if there weren't some signs that were present um, with that girl in terms of with her peer group or at school um, in terms, because we said, there has to be something more that's going on and she would have exhibited something that someone should have seen or did see and probably and didn't report that to the proper people. It's very possible unless they were so secretive, these two, and we've seen that before with children that they are so secretive about these little plots of theirs, whether it's the I'm running away or I'm going to, you know, take some money out of mom or dad's wallet. Do you know what I'm saying? Um, they, they can be very, very secretive. These kids, they're very as, as innocent as a 12 year old is, they are also very advanced in being able to keep a lot of these secrets. Um, so it will be interesting to figure this all out. Um, I don't even know, honestly, my gosh, I don't even know where authorities begin with this. It is such a massive tragedy, such a massive tragedy. I pray to God that the little girl and that the father survived this um, and are as unharmed as possible in their recovery. And um, man, I don't know what happens to her. Yes, yeah, she also needs to get probably like some services. And I would be interested to know if, because not being as familiar with Texas law, that is it something that would have to start off in their juvenile courts and then they transfer it to an adult court? Meaning if it's in juvenile court, then we wouldn't hear or information wouldn't be released as to what happened. And if it's in adult court, then courts are open. So that's people could follow along with the investigation and kind of find out more in terms of what happened. Children do a lot of stupid things. It comes with the age, but this, this is just shocking. This type of case that I, I can say that, look, I've been working on these cases, homicide cases for over, easily over a decade now, but 
even something like this would still jar me because it's so unusual that you'll see something like that involving two young children and having this type of plot. Now we have an update on a case that we've been following since 2016. This is the case of Sherry Papini, a California mother who was believed to have been abducted. She miraculously reappeared on Thanksgiving Day, but she was beaten, bruised, shackled. Even her shoulder was branded. I mean, it was horrifying. This case made massive headlines. And so, you know, the case faded from the headlines for years, but police kept working on this because it never made any sense, right? It just never made any sense. Who gets kidnapped, then reappears, gets let go, and then that's it, right? It's just like, woo! (laughs) Um, Everyone was very suspicious. Obviously, police were always very suspicious. Well, it turns out that the entire thing was a hoax. Sherry was hiding at an ex-boyfriend's house. He thought, He thought, the ex-boyfriend from high school, thought that he was helping an old friend um, because Sherry claimed that her husband was abusing her and he was helping her to get away from an abusive husband. That is a lie. Um, Keith was not abusive to um, Sherry, but that is what she convinced the friend. So the friend takes her in. He doesn't realize, you know, at first that there's this, this massive search for her and the FBI is involved. What is shocking to me is that for all these years, he, the, the ex-boyfriend who took her in, and his family who knew that she was staying there, all kept quiet. Like, nobody said a word about the truth, especially when she's found on Thanksgiving Day, and everybody's, like, having Thanksgiving dinner and hearing, like, oh, my God. You know, and then hear the rest of the story. So that, to me, was shocking. So here is how police figured it out, which is important, um, since nobody was going to reveal the details. When Sherry is taken to the hospital that day, um, police take her clothes and they do DNA testing. They eventually find DNA. It takes a while. They do a familial DNA search and it pops. It matches her her old ex-boyfriend. The FBI goes to talk to him in Southern California and he's like, yeah, she told me this. She stayed here for a few weeks. You know, she cut her own hair. She beat herself up. She starved herself. Like he explains everything. He passes the polygraph test, everything. The FBI is like, this guy's telling the truth. And then, you know, they finally confront Sherry with her husband present. And all of that was videotaped, but none of that was released until she was sentenced. So this is the amazing part. So she has pleaded guilty to one count of mail fraud, one count of making false statements, and was just sentenced last week to 18 months in prison. So when she was sentenced, prosecutors finally released all of the juicy interrogation videos. They are fascinating. So ABC's 2020 is doing a two-hour special on this case. They're releasing the videos. I provide some commentary on this because, you know, I've covered the case here for us. Um, So I'll be in this episode. It airs Friday, September 30th. Um, That's the same day that this podcast is being released. We've got a preview of it for you now. Let's play the clip. It's the greatest story ever of survival, right? Except it never happened. Do you want to go first? The married mother of two vanishing without a trace while jogging near her home. What happened to Sherry Papini? Sherry Papini. Sherry Papini. The family convinced she was abducted. Now on 2020, newly released, her call for help. Video inside the interrogation room. That's not what happened, Sherry. And her dramatic police interview. This is very weird for me because I know that you know everything. Sherry says her kidnappers told her that she was going to be sold as part of a sex trafficking ring. Sherry actually had been branded on the upper right portion of her back. Exodus, something from the Bible. Then things get far more twisted. Wait a minute. Issues with infidelity, issues with lying, and a history of running away. In new video obtained by ABC News, we see for the first time her husband in the room by her side as the officers confront Papini. I didn't do anything wrong. You're not telling the truth. Now it all comes crumbling down. Cherry just like did a quick turn, trying to get away. She was grabbed and handcuffed. But there's still one piece of this crazy puzzle. What are the chances? The Vanishing Act, the 2020 event special, Friday night at 9, 8 central on ABC.
So, Robert, this is an incredible case. It's to see the interrogation tapes and to hear Sherry at these moments that police, you know, especially that moment when they confront her with the truth. And all she does is she rolls up in a ball. She puts her legs and knees up on the chair and she's just like, she just rolls up and won't look at anybody. She's talking to them, but she won't talk to the interrogators as if by rolling up into a ball, like one of those little pill, pill, you know what I'm talking about? Those little insects that you touch sure. them, they, right? Oh, you know, or armadillo in terms of just like- Or oh. armadillo, exactly. And everything will be fine. It's just unbelievable to me that even when confronted with the truth, she just like, no, she puts up her Teflon. Yeah, this is probably one of the more bizarre cases that uh, I think I've seen. And it's sort of just, I mean, why would someone do that? And it's probably the 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 culture that we have in terms of how these stories can just be in the media for you know, a certain amount of time and the amount of fame or you know, become infamous as a, as a result of being the, these types of stories. And we've seen it before um, in terms of, like, first one I remember, like the, the Susan Smith um, sort of like analogous saying, you know, making the claim that something happened to her children when she was the one who did it. But just the the lips that she went through in this case um, to try to cover up what she was doing and, you know, for, for whatever reason and thinking that, that she was not going to be found out. Like I said, it's just very bizarre. And the fact that the federal government picked this up, I think that's a showing that, hey, they wanted to send a, a clear message. I think I read even that the sentencing judge, you know, mentioned something along those lines that he wanted to send a clear message that this is not something that people should try to do or, or emulate because you're, you're taking valuable resources from when law enforcement could be, you know, following up on, on someone that was legitimately hurt or, or harmed in some way. And what's interesting is that even the prosecutor and the defense, obviously, they uh, the prosecutor asked for more time than the defense. But the judge was like, no, you're getting more. You're getting more. And the judge said, I honestly believe you would still be telling this lie had you not been caught. And I think that that's true. And there are these incredible statements that have been made by both, you know, because people wondered, was her husband in on it? No, that he appears to have truly been an innocent victim in all of this. And he stood by her for all these years, right? Stood by her. And then that moment that he hears the truth that she was hiding out in an ex-boyfriend's house the whole time and had made it up. Oh, wow. So he has now filed for divorce. He's done with her. He is done with this lunatic. So he's Keith has filed for divorce. And her own sister even came out with a statement saying that she, that Sherry didn't admit to her sister until the night before sentencing about the heinous thing that she had actually, I mean, she's yeah, a mess. The end, she's still trying to deny it. But, you know, the, the thing about it in terms of the type of person, the, the, the such a narcissist that you were willing to put your family through that turmoil of them thinking that you were, um, kidnapped or, you know, God knows what, being harmed in some way, just so that, you know, you didn't want to go home. Ugh, disgusting. And the judge also has ordered that she pay restitution more than $300,000 to reimburse, you know, all the agencies that wasted a ridiculous amount of time trying to find her when they could have been solving other crimes against people, real crimes that had been committed. It's just horrific. Anyway, the, the 2020 special airs um, Friday night at nine on ABC. And if you miss it there, y'all can stream it on Hulu. And, you know, these tapes are so incredible. I kind of think, Robert, maybe we should do a special podcast on it because you they're just so good. These yeah, tapes are so good. Watching it this Friday. Oh, it's unbelievable, this stuff. Unbelievable. It is time now for our comment section. These are the crime cases that you all are talking about on our social media. And our producer, Will Updike, is here now. Okay, Will, what's everybody talking about? All right, so this week's case is kind of like the setup to a bad joke. Uh, A woman and a raccoon walk into a bar, and it ends in some charges and a rather unfortunate kind of test for rabies. So... This comes out of Madoc, North Dakota. Uh, We have a 38-year-old woman who was arrested and now facing criminal charges after she brought a non, allegedly brought a non-domesticated raccoon, which she was keeping as a pet, into a bar. Now, she had reportedly named this raccoon Rocky 
she defended uh, her bringing the raccoon into a bar, saying that the raccoon never left her arms. Uh, but officials heard about this, you know, raccoon in a bar. Uh, they got really concerned about a possible rabies exposure. So it's also worth noting that the North Dakota Board of Animal Health Law prohibits keeping a wild raccoon as a pet. It seems fairly reasonable. Uh, but yeah, they, they got concerned about this rabies exposure. So they conducted an investigation into the suspect here and they executed numerous search warrants. Apparently, I don't know how hard it is to find a raccoon, uh, but they located this raccoon. Uh, so the suspect here, Aaron Christensen, was taken into custody and she's facing charges of giving false information to law enforcement. I guess she might have you know, tr tried to avoid this raccoon getting taken, tampering with evidence and some other uh, fish and game violations. Now, this raccoon, Rocky here, uh, was found on the side of the road um, and he you know, they were trying to sort of nurse him back to health. He was kind of like a family pet. But unfortunately, with this like concern of rabies, uh, they they have to put the animal down to do this. No, yeah. it's no, really, it's really no. really tragic. But like they have oh. to, the, the, the test like involves taking like brain tissue from two different parts. So unfortunately, Rocky, why did they think that Rocky had rabies if well, he wasn't exhibiting any? Come on now. Right. Like if he was staying in this woman's arms uh, no. and, and the, the kicker is he came back negative uh, no. for the rabies. So no. oh. it's it's just, you know, it's it's absolutely awful. Um, you know, she she could face up to two years in jail and a fee of up to seventy five hundred dollars. I, I kind of hope that maybe prosecutors will, will give her a little bit of a break considering that they didn't have rabies. It seems like it was very well behaved in the bar. Uh, but she, you know, she said her family and I were, were very obviously upset um, at this raccoon being taken away. Uh, she said he had three good months with the family. We're sad that he will no longer grow into his raccoonness, which is yeah. a, a direct quote. Um, uh, yeah, I, I guess the moral they didn't have to do that. They could have taken it to a wildlife sanctuary where the animal is watched. Why do you have to kill the animal? The animal had nothing to do with this. I agree. I, I feel like it's a little drastic, but maybe, you know, the, the takeaway here is what? Don't bring your pet raccoon into the bar. Like the, mm. there's a lot of things you can do with a pet raccoon. Like, does it need to go to the oh. bar? We, you know, we live in California where people are you know, trying to bring their pets everywhere. Um, but that's everywhere, though. I, I was yeah. just watching this lady the other day on Instagram and she's driving and her raccoon is like nestled, you know, and I'm like, how can she drive videotape and have the raccoon nestled in her shoulder all at the same time? Well, they have those good little hands. It could have been helping hold the phone. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I, and I don't know if she tried to get the raccoon a drink or anything, uh, but, the, you know, people were obviously very devastated at how this case ended. But, the, you know, it is an interesting story. Nonetheless, Stephanie R said that's one way to start a conversation at a bar, which I actually do want to know, like what, you know, what bar patron uh, or if it was the owners of the establishment, um, you know, right. reactionary enough to, to call the police. Like I probably would have said, you know, can you just take your raccoon outside? Right. Um, we don't serve raccoons here. Uh, Donna B wanted to know, was he underage? Which, you know, I think that that could be a consideration. Side note, I, raccoons uh, will like put their little hands in a drink or something if you leave it outside and like lick it out uh, off their paws. Uh, there was like a Coke can left outside a cabin I was staying in and they like they got their little paws in there and lick it off, uh, which would be adorable to see at a bar. Um, so at this point, I have to bring up the mugshot of this uh, alleged suspect here. Uh, she looks like a person who might have no profiling, but she looks like a person who might have, you know, resuscitated a, a raccoon and taken it into a bar. And she's wearing a shirt that says got freedom, which a lot of people had a lot to say about. Big Mac said the irony of a mugshot of someone wearing a got freedom shirt is absolutely perfect. And other people talked about some strange animals that they'd seen in a bar. Jack's mom's actually related. They said, I can relate to her. I never leave home without my unicorn. I, I'm I'm okay with pets being places. I'm okay with pets being at the bar. There's a there's a bar not too far from me where there's like a, a tiny miniature poodle that has a seat next to the guy, mm -hmm. uh, and it just kind of minds its own business, does its thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, and I'm sure proof of rabies. I get that. Look, I get that. Okay, don't bring the animals into bars. I get that. I my problem is. Look, and you want a charger? Okay, you know, y'all will decide this in, in a court. Why must we kill this animal? Yeah, yeah. I just can't. I can't get past this, people. Side note, I'm like, very mad. We, we haven't Robert, found can we sue anyone about this? 
to get well, some justice for this poor raccoon. Searching suit for emotional distress in terms of for them taking her raccoon away from her. But it might be an uphill battle for her. Yeah, if it's not a legal pet, I feel like you might be you might be in a bit of a pickle there. But mm. I, it, well, also, obviously, she's a Marvel fan to name the raccoon Rocket. As soon as you said the raccoon in the bar, I was thinking, I wonder if the name is Rocket Raccoon. Uh, so it was pretty close. <laughs> pretty close, yeah. Um, I, I'm also just surprised. How, how have we not found a better test for rabies yet? Yeah, yeah. And it, again, I'm sorry. I just, oh, Will, you've really upset me now. Unfortunate, unfortunate. Um, un- unfortunate all around. I'm sorry. That one wasn't normally as, as fun as we normally do, but... This is, uh, we'll just kind of end this segment on a little bit of a memorial for Rocky. You know, okay. what could have been, he could have grown into his full raccoonness. But that's going to do it for this week. I want to thank everybody who left their comments. You can always do that over on our Facebook or on our YouTube community page. You can also do it on Facebook, as I said, uh, Instagram, Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. We're still on our quest for 5 million subscribers on YouTube. So if you haven't subscribed, please do. Please tell your friends. Uh, but that's going to do it for me. I'll see you all next week. Because when we reach 5 million... We are going to have a very special guest on the show. Maybe a couple of you we'd like to have featured. We're still working on the logistics, uh, Mm -hmm. but just get, let's just get to that number. uh, And Mm -hmm. I I promise you, we will get it figured out. And you know what? If you want to have your raccoons with you as you join us on the podcast, I'm totally fine with that. I just want to say that. All raccoons, welcome. welcome. (laughs) Or unicorn. Or unicorn. Well, that is our program for today. Robert, thank you as always for your insight. Uh, I'm really glad we got a chance to talk about these cases, especially when I, I saw you, are, you were already curious um, and thinking of the law in both of these cases on your Instagram. So where can people find you on social media? Yeah, sure. So um, Instagram is Robert K. Corbett ESQ. So I'm not that original. So like every other lawyer, I'll put Esquire behind my name, but that's my Instagram handle. Well, that's how I found you. (laughs) (laughs) I I follow the lady with the raccoon (laughs) driving her car and I follow you. What does that say about me? I don't know. But if you look at... uh, I'm interested in the raccoon case, so I might try to follow her as well. Okay, very good. Yes, um, I sometimes post about crime and sometimes I post about animals. <laughs> it's like, it, it's whatever moves me that day. Um, you can find me at Anna G, Anna with one N, uh, on all social media sites. You can find all of our episodes to our podcast wherever you get your podcast. Subscribe to our YouTube channel, True Crime Daily. And then sign up to receive our newsletter at truecrimedaily.com. So... Until next week, I am your host, Anna Garcia, and as we always say, don't do crime. <laughs>